With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Who What Wear with Hillary Kerr, your direct line to the designers, stylists, beauty experts, editors, and tastemakers who are shaping the ever-evolving world of fashion. I'm your host, Hillary Kerr, and today I'm speaking with actress, comedian, writer, and SNL cast member, Heidi Gardner. This year marks Heidi's fifth season at SNL and with original characters like teenage movie critic Bailey Gizmer and Angel, aka Every Boxer's Girlfriend, it's safe to say that she is funnier than ever. Heidi is here to talk about her incredible come up in the comedy world, the importance of her super nostalgic SNL dressing room, and where to look for some of her favorite fashion moments on the show. It's all coming up on Who What Where. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for being here today. I feel so lucky to be talking to you in the middle of a crazy work schedule with everything going on. I mean, I'm a huge SNL fan and have been since high school, middle school, a long ass time. So I wanted to start by going back in time, actually, and talking about how you got your start in comedy. I read that you started at The Groundlings, which is a famed LA-based improv theater around 2010, and that you took classes and performed for like seven years before being cast in SNL, which seems like a very fast trajectory, just saying from the outside. I'm wondering what that process was like for you and what the casting process was like, because we've all heard a million interesting stories. As someone who has read Live from New York at Saturday Night, like (laughs) that piece of it always fascinates me. So let's start there. Yes. Well, you know, it was kind of amazing when I started at Groundlings. It was all because I went to go see a show there. I was invited by a friend who happened to be in the Groundlings. And of course, I had heard of the Groundlings because I grew up saying loving SNL. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. So I was never like a kid actor or anything like that. But I was obsessed with movies and comedy and pop culture and like, The closest I ever came to like a celebrity was like if Keanu Reeves band at the time was performing at the city market in Kansas City. Like I would be like a star is coming to Kansas City. Like I have to go see it. So dog star was everything, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) My friends were like, wait, we like Keanu Reeves, but why would we see his band play? I'm like, because it's Keanu Reeves. So that's all to say, (laughs) I did know what Groundlings was because I was like, oh, yeah, like Will Ferrell, who's, you know, hilarious, came from there and Kristen Wiig. But I didn't know it was like an accessible thing to get to see. So I go to see a show there and this is probably in like 2009. And I go to see my friend in the show, Rachel and Hugh, and they're hilarious. It's an improv show. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I went with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, Zeb. And I remember us walking away from that show. And our biggest takeaway was like, finally, we have like a go-to when people are in town to like take them to go see. Like, we know this is like hilarious. People will love this from out of town. Like, this is our new thing. So that's all to say, we see the improv show. We tell our friends, Rachel and Hugh, like, that was the funniest thing we ever saw. And they're like, well, come back on Saturday night. There's a sketch show that night. And we're like, what do you mean? And they're like, it's kind of like a mini SNL. It's like hour and a half, two hour show. There's an intermission, but it's just like sketches like you would see on SNL. And I was like, oh, that sounds so cool. (laughs) So we go back on Saturday night. We see it. I just have to say that at that time, Melissa McCarthy was still in the groundlings. And dang, (laughs) she was incredible we were like why isn't this like the biggest star in the world also my now cast member on snl mikey day was in the show we're like this is the funniest person ever like why isn't he in everything 
And then six months later, Bridesmaids came out and it was like, <laughs> then she was. And, you know, like, then like five years later, you know, Mikey's on SNL and, you know, the world made sense. But that was my introduction to the Groundlings, which was like a very cool introduction. And I remember leaving that show and maybe it was Rachel said to me, she was like, you're so funny. You should take a class here because I would leave like messages on Rachel's voicemail in character. And she was like, you leave those voicemails, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm, I was always good at prank calls. Like as a kid, that's why I do that. And she was like, well, just take an improv class. And so I came home to Zeb and I was like, Rachel thinks I should take an improv class. And he was like, yeah, you should. And I was like, I don't know. I was like, it sounds really scary. And I was a hairdresser at the time. And and he was like, I've taken one of those improv classes. I was bad, but I knew the second I started, like Heidi would be good at this. And I was like, okay, Rachel thinks I should. Zeb thinks I should. But I was like, that's not enough for me. So I called my brother, <laughs> Justin, my older brother. And I was like, hey, I'm like thinking about taking an improv class at the Groundlings. And he was like, Heidi, I've been waiting like our entire childhood and life for you to say something like this. You should absolutely take the class. I will pay for it for it. He's my older brother, always so supportive and sweet. Like, you have to do this. And so I was like, okay, like, I'm signing up. And I signed up for, like, the most basic, like, improv workshop 101. But I had a lot of fun in that class. And then there was an improv workshop A, and then I signed up for improv workshop B. And I had no goal. I was just like, these are fun. This is a nice hobby to have outside of work, doing hair. And I think I'm becoming less shy. I'm like a better listener. And I don't know, I could just see how it was like affecting my life in a positive way. And I was like, I'm getting this part of my personality that like, was inclined to leave two minute voicemails in character (laughs) to just my friends or boyfriend. I was like, it's getting that part like out of my system in like, I guess, like a healthy way, other than just like inflicting it on people. (laughs) So I was just doing that and I I was like, okay, and now I'll audition into basic. But I really didn't have a plan. It was this really cool thing at that time where it was like, I have a career, I'm a hairdresser, and I'm just Mm -hmm. doing this thing where I'm following my bliss. And there was also a show at the Groundlings called The Black Version. And it was where Black improvisers would improv the Black version of a popular movie that was usually with like all white people. So I remember the first one I ever saw was Back to the Future, but they did Black to the Future. The whole first half of the show was the version of the movie Black to the Future. And then after intermission, it would be shorter form improv where it was like the deleted scenes, the director's commentary of the Black version. And it was the best improv I'd ever seen in my life. This was before Key and Peele, but Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key were in the show. Uh, Danielle Gathers, Gary Anthony Williams, the director of the show, Karen Mariyama, who's like an amazing performer and director at the Groundlings. It was just like the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. So I used to see that show religiously on Monday nights. And I remember being in a class at the Groundlings and someone asking me, are you trying to get into the Sunday company at Groundlings? And I was like, what's that? And he was like, well, that's the company before you get into the main company. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just go see the black version. And he was like, you know, you can't be in that show, right? And I was like, I don't know that I can be in any show. I'm just like, I don't know what this is. And I really see that as like a line in the sand. Cause then that Sunday I was like, oh, I guess I have to go see the Sunday company, which was incredible. And it was like, oh, you could be in that. But it was the first time where I was like, oh, now there's a goal. And now the pressure is kind of on like, oh, I'm doing this for something. Whereas before it was literally just like bliss and didn't think it could lead to anything other than this is a new little gear that I have in my life. So it's fun. I think that's the way lots of really good things start without necessarily some giant master plan. Like I think those things often end up being the healthiest. So how did the SNL interview audition come up? What was that like? Was it terrifying? Was it exciting? Did you even care? Because you, as you said, like you had a full career going. So this was gravy. Yes, it should have been gravy. I wish I could say that I was like, SNL, take it or leave it. I don't care. <laughs> but... 
it is weird. It was like the second I knew that that Sunday company could possibly be achieved. And then the main company at Groundlings, it was like, those felt like SNL style stakes. It was like, you could do this every single Sunday night. And then if you get in the main company, you could do this every Friday and Saturday night. Like, oh, I want to do this. So I kept on doing hair because everything else, it's like you're paying money to take classes. And then, you know, even when I got into the Sunday company or the main company, you don't get paid at the Groundlings. It's all for the love, which it's like, yeah, I would do it for free or I did do it for free. But you are (laughs) paying for like all your wigs and all your costumes and all of that ends up. So it's all to say I was fully immersed in sketch writing and doing all of this. I was in love with it. And there came a certain point where I had to admit that to myself and quit the salon because I was like, oh, these people are paying me to like do their very intricate highlights and like I'll see their name on the schedule and I'll be like, oh, don't they know I have to like write sketches for free? (laughs) So I was like, okay, I need to quit the salon. And that was really funny because I did. And I told my clients, I was like, hey, so I'm leaving the salon. And they're like, okay, where are you going? We'll follow you. Like, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And they're like, to do what? And I was like, pursue comedy. Cause I didn't want to say I was an actor. I didn't consider myself an actor either at that point. It's like no formal actual training. So I just very vaguely said, pursue comedy. And they're like, are you funny? And I was like, not, oh. at, not at hair. <laughs> I might be funny in this other thing. And they're like, do not do that. Like, you're becoming the cliche. Like, you moved to L.A. to do hair. Do not now do acting. Like, stop it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. I think I have to, though. So I committed. I did Sunday Company. I made it into the main company. And because I didn't have the hair to do anymore, I was doing every single show at Groundlings that you could possibly do. So I was getting in so many reps of like, trying out new characters, trying out new sketches, improv, getting on that stage all the time. And I kind of see that as like the perfect momentum into getting SNL. Because I remember SNL actually came around when I was in Sunday Company, Mm -hmm. they saw some of us just like in LA. I didn't get flown out to New York. And I mean, I was a little bit like, oh, that sucks. But I was so busy doing Sunday Company, I couldn't really think about it so much. And I'm so glad I didn't get it then because I got so much more experience Mm. and like reps getting on stage that by the time SNL came back around and they saw me in a showcase, I was just a way better performer, a way better writer. I had way more characters. So they saw me perform at the Groundlings in a showcase that probably had like 10 other performers where we all come out, we get five minutes. But you know, I got to do it on like my home stage. It went really well. It's always hard for me to like admit if something goes really well. So the only reason I say that it (laughs) went really well is because my husband's really protective of me. So If something doesn't go well, he's, I mean, he'll be realistic and just be like, babe, it's okay. And when something goes just like fine, he also Mm -hmm. isn't like overly effusive. But I remember coming out of that showcase, we knew the talent scouts were there, the producers. And that when I saw him, he like held his hands up, just like victorious. You did it. Yes. (laughs) And he was like, you're going to get flown out. Like you absolutely will get flown out. And I was like, I don't know. And then two weeks later, I heard they want to fly you out. And they also said, just do the set you did at Groundlings. It was great. (laughs) And so it was like, okay, cool. Like, I know that. Of course, I still practiced it like 500 more times. But when I walked out for my SNL audition, it was also, you know, I'm a lifelong fan of the show. I prepared for like knowing all my bits and I I was ready and I was memorized, but I did not prepare for... That was the first time I ever saw the SNL state. Like, that's where the host does the monologue. Like, I just, <gasps> I forgot about that part. And so I'm seeing oh, all this wow. stuff. Yeah, that I've seen for all my life. And I, the fan in me is like, oh, my God. And I'm on that stage. And it's like, I want to take a picture. And then the yeah. stage manager, Chris, is like, five, four, three. And then he points at me. And then I have to do the audition. So I did the audition, but I don't remember that first audition. (laughs) It was like a blackout of just adrenaline and like, do your job. And I walked away being like, I did hear people laugh, but I can't remember it. And I don't know. And very in my head. And then 
I go home. You read the Live from New York book. Yep. You know that if you get a meeting, that's a good sign. Yep. But I didn't get a meeting. I flew home the next day, but I heard like no one got a meeting. And so I was like, okay. good. <laughs> like, that's so terrible. <laughs> no one well, got you one. Know. So, um, and then I get a call a week later that's like, hey, they want you to come back, audition again. But this time you have to do a totally new set. And it was like, oh my God, but I did like my A-list material. Like, Dang, yeah. But what was so cool about that was first I freaked out like, I did everything I can do. What what am I going to come up with now? I was able to be like, you know what? The fact that you've been performing nonstop for a year and a half now, there are so many things that you have tried out for sketch shows where the sketch didn't work. But mm-hmm. like, I remembered like that character worked, that 20 seconds worked. Oh, they liked that person. They liked that line. The audience was into this little thing. And that's what an SNL, that's what my SNL auditions were, were like, me trying to show as much range as possible in five minutes. So like the first one was like 12 characters. The second one was like 11. And so it was like all my bench players on my basketball (laughs) team and they got to finally play. Like, and I think that got me the job, you know, I mean, both did, I'm sure. But basically after that audition, I didn't hear anything for 10 days and I was like, I didn't get it. And then on the 10th day, Lauren Michaels called me and was like, Heidi, this is Lauren Michaels. I'm calling to let you know I'm bringing you on to the cast. And it was, yeah, crazy. So you didn't have to wait outside of his office with the popcorn smell and all of that? No. So also, yeah, no, after that second audition, I didn't get a meeting. But this time I could see other people leaving my hotel who auditioned going over to 30 Rock who got the meeting. And I was like, Okay, so I didn't get it. I flew home. I'm like, I know those people got meetings. I didn't get one. And even my husband was a little bit like, you didn't get the meeting. We know the lore. Yes. <laughs> it seemed like such a bad sign. Just goes to show. Yeah, I hope I could be the one person because also during that audition time, I was like rereading that book. I was trying to find any interviews with former yep. cast, current cast that talked about their auditioning process. So I just hope someone listens to this who's auditioning for SNL and doesn't get a meeting and they can still have hope. I mean, that's really kind of amazing. And it's true. Like, you know, I remember Alec Baldwin and Lauren did a podcast together and like talking about the process. And I mean, it's fascinating and it's nuanced and it seems to be pretty standardized. So but then the fact that it's not always templatized, that you can have different experiences is amazing. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious about the process because you just mentioned, you know, performing 23 characters in this very short period of time. You think about SNL and it's pulling from current events. It's pulling from the zeitgeist, not to mention the fact that like a lot of your characters also have so much youth and vitality, which indicates that you are aware of what's happening on TikTok and Gen Z and like the whole spectrum of the human experience right now. How is it that you stay tapped into everything around you? Because you're working so hard. Like, where are you getting the inspiration? How do you know what teenagers behave like? Why is it that like everyone sees a character of yours and sees Bailey and they're like, oh, I know her. It's really remarkable how many things you have to be able to understand to create the characters that you do. Well, thank you for recognizing that. Uh, Or just thank you for the compliment. So the thing that I can say about that is that actually it's very hard for me to stay on any sort of like pulse or trend, just being how busy the schedule is. Yeah. And you start to think like, oh my God, I have to watch this show and I have to watch the news and that's the part and oh, there's TikTok and and it gets overwhelming. And then just, you know, becoming like an adult woman, there's also the part of you that's like, oh, I'm not interested in certain things anymore. So I'm not flocking to, you know, TikTok as much as maybe I would have like 10 years ago. Yeah. So there is this pressure of just like, where am I supposed to look for inspiration? And I always come back to humanity, connection, Mm -hmm. and like keeping my eyes open to the outside world and trusting that it's like, okay, I may not know about all the teens on TikTok, But I have three nieces that are Uh teens, preteens that I I can pull from that. And I can trust that they probably are a version of one of those girls that that people are seeing. (laughs) 
And then I can also <laughs> trust that, like, I was a teenage girl. And as far as, like, the insecurities go and the way you feel towards your parents, I can just trust that those things carry over and, like, that I have some sort of, like, body recognition of them. And that, for me, is, like, the biggest source of inspiration. And even when I get, like, stressed out that I'm, like, oh, I'm not on top of things as much as I should, I'm, like, yeah, but you you get people and you like people and you watch people and you hear a funny thing someone says or you see, like, a brightly colored blouse and you like to build a character from that. And that's your process. And keep doing that. I love that. And everyone's process is different. And you do what works for you. That must make you a really excellent eavesdropper. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, my notes app on my phone is so full of just a line or a word that I heard from someone like in line getting hot chocolate at, you know, the chocolate shop or something. And I have to be like, remember the woman in the polka dot blouse in Godiva or I'll take a voice memo of like remembering how she sounded so that my mind can put it all together. I love that. That's a lot to pull from. And I like that the through line is just humanity because that's not about like, did you read this article or did you see what Addison was doing in this video? Like it's just being a human. And of course, that's going to end up creating characters who are probably more compelling to a wider swath of people because they recognize them. They don't have to necessarily know a niche reference. Yeah, like there was just a part this last Saturday in the cold open where I just I played like an impassioned mother who was like, worried about the books that her kids were reading in school. And yes, there was a particular comment through that character kind of on like, white America. But, you know, it's the same impassioned mom that my mom was 20 years ago when I remember she was chaperoning something and there was like, a wild kid, you know, and she was like, maintain, like maintain. And like, just that impassioned mother that like, can't help but like, get upset in public and and feel so offended. And like, it was like, it's the same lady. And I think that's what it's like, people connect with what they recognize. So of course, they're gonna like, love it when it's something like trending at the time, because it's like, oh, that was just in the news. Of course, you have to comment on that. But when you can go one more deeper level and be like, oh, yeah, that is just an impassioned mom. And that's also much more evergreen, too, because like I look at old episodes and sometimes I'm like, what is this scandal that they're talking about that (laughs) I was alive for that? Like, I don't remember. It was a blip, but it was like a hot thing. But it's like Chris Farley in a van down by the river, like which has nothing to do with anything topical that actually we still all know all of the words for. Um, So wait, speaking of those emotions. So I love the fact that so many of your characters are very impassioned. They're very (laughs) emotional. They feel a lot of feelings. And you've spoken before about the fact that like you yourself are actually pretty even keeled. (laughs) Why is it that you like tapping into the more over the top emotions of some of your characters? And is that something that you've always worked on? Has that always spoken to you in terms of your work? Or is that something that has come more through SNL? Yeah, I wish I could say it's something that I was like, (laughs) deliberately working on and it's like this is my craft but I will say I think it is my body trying to get these emotions out you know growing up in the midwest perpetual people pleaser like my whole life I think like a lot of times something I want to say gets to like right here in my throat and just can't make it out and so gets Uh pushed down and pushed down and so I think the second that I got into those groundlings classes and I was able to do characters. I think my body was just like, we gonna let it out. (laughs) This is your therapy. Yeah. And, and then thank God I got an actual therapy and (laughs) work through it. But that was never the goal to like be emotional (laughs) or be impassioned or anything. It just started happening. And it is something that like I can tap into really easily and it's usually the best I feel in a character that's the only way I can make sense of it 
And I really think that that is a more universal feeling than you might imagine. Like, it doesn't always come out exactly in that way. But I think we all have, like, alter egos in some form or another, just in the same way that, like, you know, you always hear about people, like, they behave differently on a vacation or whatever. Like, there are different versions of all of us. But I think there's something very lovely about processing some of those emotions in this safe space, in a place where you're actually rewarded for it. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I also say, like, I'm a Leo. Oh, well, there we go. (laughs) Yeah. I always thought it was, like, a cool sign to have when I was little because I was, like, a lion. That's amazing. But then I met Leos through my life that were lions. And I never identified with a Leo really as Heidi. But when I'm on stage, I'm like, that's when I get to roar. There you go. I like that. I like that. So as we touched upon earlier, the schedule for SNL is wild. Like so pre-pandemic, you had Monday host meeting, Tuesdays were writing, Wednesdays table read, Thursday is sketch development, Friday is (laughs) rehearsal and pre-tape, Saturday is obviously rehearsal and then the actual show. So this might be a weird question, but in all of that process. Do you have a favorite time or a favorite day or a favorite part of the work? Yeah. So I love to write. So Tuesdays are very fun in the fact of just like, you know, if I have an idea that I love and a character that I love, it's very fun to write a sketch for them. And also if there's like a host that I'm super inspired by, you know, it's all very exciting. But also, there's certain expectations you want. You want it to be a great sketch. You want it to get laughs the next day at the table. So there's a little bit of pressure. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm in my joy, but I'm also like, oh, I hope this is a great sketch. Which, you know, anytime you have expectations, that can like take away a little bit of the joy. So then on Wednesdays, when it's table read, you actually get to perform that and then perform in pieces that also other people wrote for you. That's also just an incredible time to just like let that lion out and roar (laughs) and like get to do so many different parts in the span of like three and a half hours. And that's a super fun thing. The same though, at the end of it, you're like, I hope that one gets in. I hope this, you know, like, again, you're hoping and expecting. I shouldn't even say expecting. (laughs) You're really just hoping. Do you have a sense now after as much time as you've been on the show of like what's going to get picked and what's not? Or does it still surprise you? Sometimes it'll still surprise me. I mean, sometimes there are things that are just like, I mean, yeah, that was the funniest sketch (laughs) at the table that is definitely going to go in. And then every so often, even something like that won't go in because it's like, well, maybe that was like a set that is a little too hard to pull off. You know, there could be all these other variables or it could even be something where it's like, yeah, it was hilarious to that entire room, but maybe, maybe the host didn't totally feel comfortable like being like a, 80s aerobics instructor dancing and singing, you know, like maybe they don't want to take that big of a swing. So you have to like save it for a different week. So there are some times where you're like, yeah, that's definitely going in, but you can always be super surprised. Interesting. So in this sort of pandemic and hopefully soon to be post-pandemic world, you guys have been working from home on Mondays and Tuesdays, right? Yes. Um, On Tuesdays now, it is up to you if you want to go in and, you know, distanced and masked and everything like that. And last year I stayed home on Tuesday nights and like, of course it was like, okay, I like writing from home. It's <laughs> I'm comfortable. I don't have to commute, but I think it was a little too easy and you would zoom with other writers, but this year I've been going back on Tuesdays. I want to be around people. I want to connect. Do you think the energy is different for your work when you're actually in person as opposed to just zoom? Yes. I definitely do. I think it's just more fun. And like, you know, I just had a experience the other day with a writer, Celeste, I was doing the character and they were doing the character. And like, I could feel the charge in their body and the charge in mine. And we're just it was like a better give and take in person than like being miles apart on zoom. That makes sense. So I'm assuming you have folks who you prefer to collaborate with or who you work well with. What is that process like? It's kind of just reaching out on Monday or Tuesday and being like, hey, I've got an idea or they have an idea and being like, are you interested? Do you think there's anything here? You know, should we pitch on it a little? Is that scary if it's someone who like you aren't super friendly with or who you don't know as well? Or like, I kind of feel like that would be like dating in a weird way. (laughs) 
Totally. I mean, so much of SNL feels like dating or middle school because you are consistently putting yourself out there. And also most of the time getting rejected, I do have to say, and not necessarily on writing night, but sometimes, you know, because sometimes people are too busy. They can't go out on a date with you or they're just not that into your idea. And then sometimes you get a sketch on the show and it's like everyone laughed at the table. You're popular around these people. And then you Mm -hmm. go out and perform it for like a new crowd, like a different school. And they do not like you (laughs) and they reject you. And then you get cut. And you know what's funny is you get used to it. It's like I do get used to the fact that it's like the odds are low, like for this making it all the way to the end. Like I could very well get rejected again. Also, I don't want something to go on air that isn't good. Like that doesn't look good for me or the show. I've dealt with it so many times, but I'm not bulletproof either at this point. Like it stings. The artist inside of you, the career person inside of you is like, I put so much of myself into this. Even if it was just this week, it's like my baby. Yeah, it's hard. What is it like writing for the host? I mean, I'm sure there have to be some times where you're like, I got this. And other times where you're like, I don't know you. I don't know what your vibe is. I don't know what you're going to be willing to do. What's an ideal host scenario for you? Well, it's really interesting because I think you get most excited when an alumni is coming back. It's like, I think the first alumni who ever came back since I had been on the cast my first year, I think Will Ferrell hosted. And it was like... The dream. And it was also a really cool example of like writers cast everyone just being very unselfish. Like it was kind of like, I don't care what I write for myself. I just want to write, try and write in your voice and what made me a fan of you. So that's a really cool thing where you just get to see, you know, Will Ferrell, Maya Rudolph, Adam Sandler, Eddie Murphy, Kristen Wiig, they've all hosted Seth Meyers um, since I've been there. And it's just like, I just want to watch this person thrive that I have loved forever. This is incredible. It feels like the challenging weeks are when you get kind of more of a dramatic actor and you're like, are they even into these stupid sketches? Do they think they're over, you know, like, what are they going to be like? And then that's always really surprising. I remember it was my first year. I think it was Sterling K. Brown hosted. And Mm -hmm. there was a sketch where... How to Train Your Dragon came up like at a dinner and the dad in the sketch back was like, oh, that's like the best animated movie for sure. And Sterling King Brown is like, well, I mean, okay, but it's actually Shrek. And (laughs) the way that he played it, because he's more of a dramatic actor, was just earnest, honest, like a real person would play it. And also impassioned because this man that he was playing, he decided was very passionate about the fact that Shrek is the best DreamWorks movie. And it was like, he wasn't going for jokes the entire time. He was just committed. And I was like, that's one of the funniest things in the world. And that scares me that you're actually funnier than a comedian right now, because you're not trying to be a goof. You're not trying to get laughs. You're just being real. And then I notice it more in movies where I'm just like, they're just committed. And it's like, it's very cool to see. Do you ever have like major pinch me moments when there's either an artist or a celebrity or just a host who you like can't believe is there? I'm curious about some standout moments for you. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, my third year there, Will Ferrell hosted again. And it happened to be on this night. It was like we were rehearsing uh, sketches, but also like the whole cast had to get ready for this gala that we were all attending with Lauren. And so it was like you'd run from a rehearsal into the hair and makeup chair and get your hair done and makeup. And then you were putting on a gown and then running back out to the rehearsal. And at one point I was getting my hair done and Will was exiting the studio from a rehearsal and walking by me, getting my hair done. And he was like joking with me. And at one point he took the hairdryer and the brush from the hair person and started blowing out my hair. And I was like, I'm usually pretty cool, like, to never ask for a picture or anything like that, even though most people are completely nice. But I was like, oh, I'm taking a photo. This is happening. Will Ferrell blowing out my hair because I used to do hair. This is just really funny. And so that was very cool. And then when Eddie Murphy hosted the show, I mean, Eddie Murphy was in, like, 
90% of my favorite movies. I mean, 99%. And he is like the one, the one person on earth that feels like they're not a real person. Like, they're just otherworldly because they were such a big deal. My entire life, still such a big deal. Yep. The week that he hosted, I remember, you know, being in shock the entire week. But the first day of rehearsals, when I went out onto the floor and I wasn't even in the sketch, I was just watching him on the monitor. Mm -hmm. And the first second he smiled, it was like the entire room, the camera guys, the lights, the sound, everyone I just kind of gasped because it was like, I mean, that's everything. That smile, like it lights up a camera. It lights up a screen. There's nothing like it. And we're in the same room and then they did one of those Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood sketches and me and Mikey got to be in it where we knock on Mr. Robinson's door and he opens the door and we're supposed to just kind of be like, hey, we were wondering if you happen to get one of our packages. We're like concerned neighbors. <laughs> so like typically with anyone other than Eddie Murphy, like I would be able to do my job. And from the start, when that door opens, you know, be a little concerned and there's a picture of Mikey and I when that door opens and we saw on air when we see just Eddie Murphy as Mr. Robinson, we're both like, <laughs> and then we go into our lines. But it's like, it was the coolest. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Going back to hair a little bit, I'm curious about your process for your characters with wardrobe, with hair, with makeup, like how involved are you because of your background in hair? Like, do you have different language to talk to the amazing team about? Do you care about what they're wearing? I'm imagining that you do, given the fact that when you're giving examples of like people who you see out and about, you're telling me what they're wearing. So <laughs> I'm assuming that you have a fair amount of interest, but I'm curious about that process. Well, it's really funny. When I first got the job, I mean, I used to have like hundreds of wigs when I was doing Groundlings. I had a whole shed that was like all costumes. I had like so much. And I remember I did pack like my two favorite wigs to move to New York with because I was like, just in case like the wigs there aren't like. <laughs> I love you. Like, get in, girls. We're going to New York. <laughs> yes. And then it's like I get there and it's like the best hair ever, obviously. <laughs> They've won like a million Emmys. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah, it's really cool. Like if you get a sketch in right after you find out, you go and you meet with all the different departments with hair, with makeup, with wardrobe, the set. And you get to be like, this is what I want the character to look like. And then also it can be collaborative, too, because with um, the head of hair, Jody, she'll be like, okay, I like this style. I do have to say, you've been a lot of blondes lately. Let's change it up. Like, let's do something a little darker. And then the same with wardrobe. It's like Tom, who's the head of wardrobe, he'll give me a bunch of options in the kind of version of what I wanted and showed him. And then there will be something that's like, or is she this lady? You know? And it's like, you try on her and it's like, oh no, actually this makes more sense. So it's really cool and collaborative in that way. Uh, but then there's like a weird thing, too, where I've mostly had short hair my whole life. I, I went through some phases of uh, having it longer, but I've always parted my hair to the right side. And if I ever get the chance, like parting wise on a wig, I am like, can the heavier side be <laughs> towards the right? Because you are just used to seeing that. Because if you choose to change your part just as a woman or get bangs or something, it takes a long time to get used to it. So I'm like, if yes. I can avoid that with a wig, I just am like, can it always be parted on this side? That's such a specific thing that rings so incredibly true that I would have never thought of until yes. you said it, which yeah. I love. I also <laughs> love the fact that like all of the production piece of it, you know, it's like you are sort of like your own little mini director, producer, like whole thing for yes. the stuff that you're working on, which makes sense that you'd be writing screenplays because I could see how given how much you write and having the control over creating these amazing characters and these sketches. So you just wrote a screenplay, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me anything about it? Well, it's so funny because you said it so spot on that it's like, yeah, you're a mini producer of these little sketches and you're doing that week after week. I always hear from people who used to work on SNL who now have gone on to their own shows or movies and everything that are like, SNL, it will be the hardest job you ever have and it will make things easier when you go on to other things. And I, I'm starting to understand that because I'm like, yeah, that's what they're saying. They're like, 
everything is thrown at you in one week at SNL. Not that the rest of life will be a piece of cake, but it's like it gives you these skills. And when I first started writing my script, I'd never written a feature before. So I was just straight up intimidated. And I did know the movie and what I wanted it to be. And my husband had heard me describe it to him and like my brother and close (laughs) friends so many times and like the opening scene and then this is going to happen that like he'd heard me do that for like six months straight and he was like I know you're intimidated because you've never done this and you think that you can only write nine page sketches but he was like just write the first page and it got me going and I wrote like 70 pages I mean over time but when I had him read those first 70 he was like okay, I'm glad I told you to write the first page, but I also should have told you to outline this. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's outline this and let's pick out of these 70 pages you've written, like what we want to keep, what we want to ditch. And it's been a really cool thing to see because I'm also so inspired by fashion and character and music and movies and what I've loved my entire life that not only do I want to just make a banging ensemble comedy, it's like, I want it to have a vibe. You know, it takes place in the 80s. I want it to feel like excess. I don't want it to be what you typically think is like a parody movie of the 80s. I want it to feel very much like it is in 1986 if you were watching a home video. You know, like I'm... Like a lost film. Yes, I'm very particular. I want a very certain vibe. And it's just been cool because I'm like, I've gotten all these skills the past few years and all my life of also just being a fan that I can put it into this movie. And yeah, I'm just hoping to be able to make it. Well, I'm excited. I will keep my eyes peeled and keep my eyes on your Instagram for an announcement. (laughs) Speaking of which, I love your Instagram. Mostly because I also feel like I get to see a little bit of your personal style, which you like fashion, which I love. So (laughs) I'm curious if you can tell me, like, what are some of the pieces in your closet that are getting the most wear right now? Oh, my gosh. So I'm like a huge fan of vintage. I can really go nuts. There's a store in Brooklyn called Le Grand Strip that is like the most transportive vintage store I've ever been to. I mean, it feels like my mom and her friends, they used to have these lingerie parties instead of Tupperware parties when I was little. Yes, I've read about that. Oh my God. They were incredible. And my mom was like, my parents were divorced. So like on her weeks, it's like she just had to take me to everything she did. Mm -hmm. And I would be at these lingerie parties and I would watch what I saw as the most glamorous women in the world, like come out in the long negligees and ostrich feather kitten heels the store Le Grand Strip is like reminds me of those parties. And so anyhow, I can go a little too crazy with my vintage where I live in a New York apartment, not a lot of closet space. Yep. Where last year I opened my closet and it was a little bit like, who am I? <laughs> like There was just <laughs> so much variety and color. So I pared it down. I purged a bit. And I have been super into being kind of monochromatic lately where... I still am like in like vintage brown corduroy jeans, a like, you know, vintage brown simple sweater with a a brown belt. I got these great vintage white boots that I've been wearing with everything. Mm -hmm. Or I'll do like kind of a Canadian tuxedo with like a denim shirt, same jeans and that belt and those boots. And I'm like, oh, I feel really like put together for work. And then I save kind of my like special you know, super flamboyant moments for like at the end of the show, good nights. Yes, right. Because that's like a whole other character you have to wardrobe. Yes. It's kind of fun too, because it's like, if you're not on the show a lot that week, or that's the way the show breaks down. I'm like, okay, well, you get your little fashion moment at the end of the show. (laughs) And there's your personality and your point of view right there. And I don't feel like everyone takes advantage of that, but I've always noticed that you do. So as someone who watched the whole, like I like to watch to see how much hugging happens because Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a good way of telling whether the host is awful or not, like (laughs) how much they interact with the people around them. Or it's like, you always see that one host who's standing there and no one is interacting with them. I was like, that tells me quite a bit (laughs) about things. But the fashion piece of it is also something I noticed. So I love that. What do you write in? What do you wear to write? It varies, but usually on writing night, I'll go in and like, a pair of jeans, those white boots, and like just a good blouse. Okay. You know, a little bit of a statement. A couple weeks ago, I wore some like tuxedo pants that were like comfortable. They looked good, but they were like loose and comfortable. 
And I wore like kind of a low silver heel because I was just like, I've never worn just like heels to work. Like, what does that feel like? But I wore it with like a vintage tee and like a white cardigan. So it was like kind of chill up top and then fancy on the bottom. I like that. That's amazing. Do you have any like pre-show rituals or self-care wind downs after the fact? Because I feel like that would be a lot to like have all of that energy and then And I feel like a crash would be normal, but you can't just crash every week, right? Yes. Before the show, I have like a TV VCR combo in my dressing room and I have a bunch of like my favorite movies. And this last Saturday, like I just had Mrs. Doubtfire going all day and like whether I was rehearsing or not, I would just come back to my dressing room and Mrs. Doubtfire was playing on a version of a TV that like I probably had as a kid and it just Mm -hmm. feels really comforting. And like in my dressing room, I've made it really like, you know, lots of Christmas lights and twinkle lights and like pretty stuff around and pictures that make me feel comfortable and like the perfect candle because outside of that dressing room, it's intense. And so if I can come back to just like a safe space that feels like me I feel like that's a good way to go into the show. And also, my dressing room is super nostalgic. It looks like my room when I was like 14 years old. Because whenever I get back to who I was then and the things that I was into then, it's the same stuff I love now. You know, it's like you become an adult and sometimes you get wrapped up in things because you feel like you have to or this is like because it's cool or that's what that person is doing. But like, I still love all the things I did then. And so I want those things that were like kind of my original influences and like what made me funny, like when I had no goal end in sight, I want those things around me. They still make me feel good. So yeah, that's my pre-show self-care and then post-show. Yeah, when I get home, I'm still wound up. So I'm like, always have my fingers crossed that my husband's still awake, that he might like watch something with me or like lately we like got one of those super nintendos we've been playing dr mario i'm like that's a good way to wind down yeah but yeah i can never just go straight to sleep there's still so much adrenaline going through you yeah that makes sense can we talk about your uggs campaign with mikey day because it is so (laughs) amazing so how did that come about do you like this collab like was it something natural was it something you were like you've got to be kidding me how am i going to do this like what was the process like so i've always loved uggs i feel like uggs are the best like go-to christmas gift for anyone and i feel like they're also overlooked because like I feel like guys don't realize how comfortable slippers are. And then the second you get them a pair of Ugg slippers, they're like, yeah, my feet can feel like this as a dude. Like, yeah, I will (laughs) forever get these. So, yeah, I just feel like I've always been a fan. Never did I think that they would be like, hey, we want to work with you on a campaign. So I was very shocked when I got that email from my team. So it was like, okay, I get to do these commercials with Uggs. And then they're like, and they want you to write them. And it was like, oh, oh, well, what do they even want? And they're like, they want you and your characters and creativity and and your casting and who you like to write with. And I've had such great luck working with Mikey on the show. Like, he's hilarious, such a good, amazing genius writer himself, someone I feel comfortable with. And I was also very ready for him to be like, okay I like working with you on SNL but I don't want to not that much (laughs) yeah um but he was totally down so it was really cool to like write these ideas and they let me bring along my stylist Shay uh Daspin who's incredible and she styled all of these and when I got to the set I mean the production is just incredible and it was really cool same with like on SNL to have an idea write it And then once you hand it over to like the professionals who can make these incredible worlds be like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I get to work on this for two days and shoot these with such pros. It was just a really cool thing that happened. Well, that's because you had so much autonomy, I think, like anytime that you have control over something and that someone is appreciating like your whole self and everything that you can bring to the table, like that's going to be a better experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to close this out with a fashion and SNL lightning round where you tell me some of your favorites, okay? Okay. 
So favorite SNL character of your own? It's the um, security guard I played with Michael Jordan last year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Favorite fashion designer or brand? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm really into Moschino, Jeremy Scott. Dream clothes. Dream clothes, indeed. Favorite SNL character who is not yours? I mean, I, I think I have to go with Wayne and Garth, Wayne's World. Like, when that bumper would come on, like the Aurora. Yes. You didn't know when a Wayne's World would come. And so mm-hmm. when you saw that, you knew Wayne's World was about to be in front of your eyes. It was so exciting. That's really true on so many <laughs> levels. Favorite basics brand, like something chill every day that you love. Okay. Uh, you know what's really great is Anin Bing. Very strongly agree. She's amazing. Yes. Favorite SNL celebrity host? Will Ferrell. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite musical guest? The Strokes played last year, and they're like one of my favorite bands ever. So I mean, they're, they're the coolest. Um, last but not least, favorite accessory? I have this jean jacket. I think I just got it on Urban Outfitters like probably like 10 years ago, but it was like from their like vintage line. So they just send you whatever. (laughs) You don't know what brand it's going to be, anything like that. Yeah, it's just a basic blue kind of oversized jean jacket. My mom used to have a jean jacket when I was a little girl that she would put buttons on. Uh, She was a travel agent. And I remember one time telling her, oh, mom, there's like an airplane. It was a gold airplane pin. Like, you should get that for your jean jacket. And she was like, that's the first time I knew, like, oh, my daughter's stylish. So that's all to say my jean jacket isn't filled with pins, but it has one pin. It's a vintage from the movie Contact that says who gets to go. And I just love it. That movie is amazing. And I love that you have a pin for that. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Heidi, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Oh my gosh, that was just like a real delight. Thank you. A huge thank you to actress and comedian Heidi Gardner. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, I would be so grateful if you would rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any other feedback, drop us a line at podcast at whowhatwhere.com or you can find us on social at whowhatwhere. See you next Wednesday on Who What Where with Hillary Kerr. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr and Olivia Capaletti. Editing is by Natalie Thurman and Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California. Our music is by Jonathan Leahy.